Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Rocks Back Pages podcast. My name is Barney Hoskins. I'm in foggy old London town on a lockdown grid with Mark Pringle. Hi, Barney. And Jasper Mirison Bowie. Hello, Barney. Not in foggy London town, but in <laughs> foggy Somerset is our very special guest, Jez Butterworth. Good morning, Jez. Good morning. <laughs> it's an honour to have one of Britain's leading playwrights in our virtual cupboard. So thank you for making time today. A little later, we'll be talking about Dolly Parton and about Perry Farrell and his Lollapalooza Festival. But for the first part of the episode, we're going to focus on your musical passions, Jez, and particularly the band. The first I knew of you was when I was working on Mojo magazine and I commissioned a short piece about a play called Mojo, written by a young man named Jez Butterworth. And it was set in late 50s London clubland. And I believe came out of a conversation you had about like Soho and gangsters with none other than Malcolm McLaren. How did you happen to have a, that conversation with Malcolm McLaren, Jez? So Malcolm did a show called The Ghosts of Oxford Street in about 1992, which was just, a, I think, a Channel 4 show. And he was going to do one on the ghosts of Père Lachaise. And he needed someone to write it. And I was like 23 years old and straight out of university. And I went along to meet him and I ended up getting the job, which meant that 24 hours later I was in Paris with Malcolm walking around Père Lachaise as he told me all the stories about it. It turned out that Malcolm, all Malcolm wanted was to get the commencement money from Channel 4 for Père Lachaise so he could piss off back to Poland and live cheaply for another year. He never really <laughs> intended to do the project. And so, so really excited as I was for my first TV job, within nine days I was fired from it because Malcolm had done a runner with all the cash. And I did... <laughs> I didn't see him for a couple of years. <laughs> and then he came along to see the play Mojo and he remembered a conversation that we had sitting on a grave in Père Lachaise where he was waxing rhapsodic about the relationship between early rock and roll and organised crime and all of the scene that was going on in, in Soho. And he told me about it for an hour. I remember my feet went numb. It was so cold sitting there in, ja <laughs> in January. But I was wrapped by what he was, what he was saying. And he looked at me squarely in the eye and he said, you know, Jez, someone should really write something about this. 
And I thought when he ran off to Poland with all the money, I thought, right, I'm going to do just that. I'm going to just nick this idea straight off you. <laughs> and so, so two years later, he comes to see it at the Royal Court and we met up afterwards and we went for a drink around the corner. And he said, yeah, I really enjoyed it. And he looked at me and he said, did I ever tell you about my idea? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, I don't remember that, Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> I don't recall. Mind it's straight, it's straight out of the McLaren playbook. I mean, you know, he's, he's, yeah. he's been happy to the steal. McLaren to the McLaren. <laughs> yeah. I Seriously, I think, you know, if the Rolling Stones had sticky fingers, he had the stickiest fingers going, <laughs> didn't he? And, and, and I That's really true. felt like it was, it was yeah, it was, a, it was a burglar forgetting to lock their back door. <laughs> <laughs> we did a podcast episode not that long ago. In fact, it was the first one we did in lockdown with Paul Gorman, who wrote the McLaren biography. So we, we were talking about his sort of giant historical crush that he had on gangsters yeah, <laughs> and nightclub life in London and all of that. He was very smitten with that. He even interviewed, he did this long interview, which, which I've seen with Peter Grant, Led Zeppelin's infamous yeah. manager. Yeah. He never quite got over this, this fascination. Anyway, so that really you have Malcolm to thank for what's been an incredible career. I have him to thank for so much. I mean, yeah. those nine, nine days come back to me. At the oddest times. I mean, he was the most, I really think he was the most extraordinary set of ideas. He was an amazing man. And he just, on his day, with a wind behind him, you know, it really was like extraordinary to, to listen to what he had to say and his opinions. And he taught me probably more in that graveyard than I'd learned at three years at, at university, you know, just about sort of culture, about situationism, all these different things, how punk came about. It was absolutely fascinating you know to find yourself sitting in a cafe in paris listening to to malcolm just sort of tell you all of that over countless glasses of red wine it really was a proper education i can believe it i can believe it i mean look jez you are it goes without saying most famous for the for the play jerusalem probably the most acclaimed british play of of the last i don't know how many years or decades but music has never been far from your work i mean you you co-wrote with one of your brothers a film about James Brown and in a sense the reason that I asked if you would be kind enough to come on the podcast was because you know we had had a brief exchange about the band and that you had written a script based on John Niven's incredible novel or novella music from Big Pink so when did you first sort of get into the band or into you know that kind of American music so me and my brother, Tom, we were two of five kids and we lived in a quite small house outside St Albans. And as we grew bigger, we had to move out to the garage because there wasn't room for us in the house. And so me and my brother lived in half the garage as we were growing up. And he was four years older than me. And he had a friend called Simon Audley who had a brother who was four years older than him. And Chris Audley had a massive record collection. And so Chris was 17 and I was, I was nine in that two, four-year gaps. And one summer, Chris and Simon went on holiday and Simon, we went round and borrowed his entire record collection. And Chris had about 300 LPs. And so I sat in that garage that summer, age nine, and 
we maybe had four or five LPs in the house up until that point, and suddenly we had 400, and we just went through them all, and it was everything you could you could name. He had Chris had just immaculate taste, wow. and you know it was everything. It was even stuff that there's all sorts of stuff I still know that I'm not mad about, but I know because of that summer where I where I just listened to it all. It's like I know everything by Frank Zappa, who I never listened to, but it was all in there, you know, and, uh, but all of the stuff that I really, really grew to love was there. And so by the time I sort of went to secondary school, I knew every, every band song. (laughs) That is extraordinary. By the time I was sort of 10 or 11. That is extraordinary. I mean, I noticed in, uh, I read this New Yorker profile of you by Emma Brox, and towards the end of it, you allude to the infamous Neil Young tour of the UK in 1973, where he played the whole way through Tonight's the Night, (laughs) and everyone booed and complained, rather like Dylan and the Hawks, and we're talking about that in a minute. But everyone sort of complained. And so at the end, he said, all right, I'll play you, I'll play you a song you you know and you've heard before. He just played. Like tonight's the night, the song again. <laughs> I mean, he had balls, didn't he? I just, I mean, I adore that. Yeah. I really stand up and salute that. Yes, completely. So, I mean, so, well, that is phenomenal that you knew the band's music before you went to secondary school. <laughs> Tell me how, you know, the, did you get to know John Niven after that novella came out? Which I just, I can't recommend highly enough. It is an extraordinary novel. It's, it's, really wonderful it's part of the 33 and a third series and i think it's probably the only one i've encountered which chooses to fictionalize its subject rather than write some sort of um uh you know critical analysis of it it's just i couldn't believe it i couldn't put it down when i eventually it was i think i first spoke to robbie robertson in 2007 and he had read it and he felt that it was just eerily close to the atmosphere of what it was actually like, as he recalled it. He said it was like, it was creepy in a way. It was like sort of haunting that somebody could channel and encapsulate, distill a spirit that they had only really experienced, you know, second or third hand. He found that extraordinary. That's just to speak, that's sort of the best review John could ever get for that. I mean, it's interesting that Robertson doesn't come out very well in the book either. And he, it didn't bother him. That's a really good point. It didn't bother him remotely. When I say it didn't bother him remotely, it didn't bother him in 2007. When I spoke to him <laughs> about it recently, he was massively dismissive of the entire adventure. But at the time when he read it, at first blush, he didn't mind. He, he, he thought that that was a pretty accurate portrayal of how he would come across at that point. And I thought... I thought, wow, here is someone who is not particularly interested in attractive portraiture and it just wants to sort of get to what the spirit of the thing was. It was mm. it was kind of rare. I mean, I'm with you. I loved it. It's by far my favourite of the 33 and the third series. And maybe there's a case for more rock biographies being fictionalised in the future because the truth is often too boring to withstand. Unfortunately, I, can, I met John at one of my sister's parties on her boat and I was... I managed to offend him by saying how much I loved that book, but being slightly less enthusiastic about 
His other rock and roll book. What was what was the um, Kill Your Friends? Yes, Kill Your Friends, which I really struggled with, and I, oh, I loved to Kill Your Friends. Too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I made I made the mistake of telling them that I didn't like it, which he's really well, you're quite do. good at that that mistake. You know, <laughs> I, tell well, it like it is. Oh God, God, yes. <laughs> well, the, the the atmosphere chilled instantly. You know, and then he <laughs> threw you off the boat. And then, <laughs> yes, where it was even chillier. Um, yes. Jess, have you seen, as a matter of interest, I assume you have seen Once Were Brothers? I have seen it. Which is Robertson, as it were, telling the story through the prism of his own, you know, his own perspective, really. The featured writer on the homepage this week is is going to be Al Ronovitz. Is Al Ronovitz by the time this episode goes out? <laughs> <laughs> we said this like weird time lag about knowing that people can be listening to this sometime after we actually record it. So Al Ronovitz was in some ways a the first like pop journalist, I would say, period, writing about the Beatles and Carole King and so forth in 1963 for the mm-hmm. New York Post. He was also probably the first got to write about the band. He went up to Woodstock. And so we're featuring this great little piece he wrote in 1968, which really gets the flavour of them. He's heard Big Pink, and he says, with music from Big Pink, the band dips into the well of tradition and comes up with buckets full of clear, cool country soul that washes the ears with a sound never heard before. Was Big Pink, would that have been the first band album that you heard, or was there another way in, Jez? Yeah, it was. I think I can remember that I listened to that a lot, but I preferred the Brown album when I was nine years old. Jeez, this is unbelievable stuff, isn't it? I definitely <laughs> preferred it. And I think that was quite simply a, that the it's it's just a little e- easier to swallow. You know? uh, no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's simply a much better album than Big Pink. I mean, Big Pink mm. was really influential on the likes of Eric Clapton, who people coming out as a whole storming bands playing the Fillmore period, you know. But the second album, Brown Album, is just stupendously good. I think I remember I think it, thinking at the time it just sounded better on our yeah. crappy on our crappy record player. It just sounded better. It's like you could you could decipher what was going on. It's very it's very better. clean and simple in that respect. Mm. There's much less production. Big Pink has odd things like bits of echo and mm. reverb and things. And the Brown album is basically the sound of a small group in a room. Well, it sort of invented lo-fi, didn't it? Yeah. You know, I mean, Big Pink was done mainly at A&R Studios, which is one of the best studios in New York. Mm-hmm. And even though it was going for a sort of earthy sound, I think the real earthy sound was what they got in this pool house yeah. in West Hollywood. Sammy, Sammy Davis, Davis Jr.'s Davis. old pool house. <laughs> I know. Thanks, Sammy. <laughs> I love the photographs in the gatefold sleeve of them in that room. And you can see John Simon's feet up. John Simon like, took one of the photographs. He was the, the producer, basically more or less the engineer more than anything else. You can see his feet up. And they, they're all gathered around with all these kind of bits of rickety stuff and amplifiers and Garth's huge keyboard. Mm. It just looks fabulous. And they, they look both in those and on the cover. They're all, they've got mostly kind of quite short hair, They've got a lot of facial hair, and they look like something out of the 19th century. Mm. The whole album sounds like it could have recorded been any time between 
1869 and 1969. Yes, <laughs> he, he, exactly. I think Grill Marcus sort of said, said words to that effect. <laughs> Jez, I'm looking at you on the screen thinking you could almost pass for Garth Hudson in 1969. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know whether that's just a sort of happenstance, really, of lockdown. I mean, obviously, there's other members of the band I'd rather look like. But, you know, <laughs> let's face it. Let's call it like it is, you know. <laughs> but I'll take it. That's so funny. I'm curious to know, because all three of you are big band fans, and... What is it that? How did I get? (laughs) But what is it that about this American country soul band that so captures as Brits? You know what? Why is it that that evokes such a deep connection for all of you? That kind of Mm. music. Well, Mm. it's 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 funny. It's not just us. I mean, that first album broke up the Beatles and the Cream. You know, it's. There are these English people listening to it going, that is vastly more authentic than the most authentic thing we can deliver. I must stop doing what I've been doing for the last, you know. It's it's so powerful to that extent. So the question, I think, goes wider than that, which is what exactly was it that felt so exquisitely authentic? When you think about what a band like Fairport were trying to do here, through similar kind of routes of, mm-hmm. of just kind of like let's just go back to the source, go back and get it. It yes, you could you could you could almost sort of with the right lawyer forensically prove why those songs are authentic, but they're not just like something that you just want to put on and and dance to in the same way or that haunt you or haunt me in the same way. And so I think that there was just this what what Fairport didn't have, let's say that the band had was just this 10,000 hours of making people dance yeah you know of of going up and down the country and just honing what makes people move and what doesn't and getting into this rhythm that just that so that even when it's slowed down and even when the syncopation is more tranquil just gets into your bones and gets your attention they'd had to get people's attention over bar fights mm. over you know the meals being served, you know, they'd, they'd just been, it hadn't been dreamt up at Cecil Sharp house. You know, right. it was, it was, it happened out on the road. It happened in bar rooms. And so it had something at its core, which I think was unfakeable. And then when you add to that, the idea that Dylan comes into their life and has such an extraordinary effect on an individual slash individuals in that band mm-hmm. at a crucial time, and I think you've got something which won't happen again. Do you think that even thought about writing their own songs before they met Dylan? Robbie probably had because he did write a couple of songs in Ronnie and the Hawks. Right. Yeah. He had those ambitions. Okay. Yeah. He wrote Bobaloo and some other song when he was like 15 years old mm-hmm. and, and Ronnie Hawkins bought them off him. This is before he even joined the, the Hawks. But Robbie, Robbie does say that when they became Levon and the Hawks, after they left Ronnie, that there was this idea that they were going to go, you know, and record stuff. And he remembers being in a a recording studio and they just started doing covers because they didn't have anything. You know, they, Mm -hmm. they, 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 they all looked at each other and it was like, well, let's see what we've got. And, and no one had really thought that through. And, And the decision therefore to start getting involved with Dylan was actually out of necessity. Wasn't it, Barney? Uh, But but, but wouldn't you, I mean, also say that 
what became the basement tapes, which is the pre Big Pink in chronologically, just being with a songwriter and seeing the process whereby he was doing what he did must have been an extraordinary education for them. Well, you know, that part of the story absolutely fascinates me because I'm, it's the part I can sort of get because I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I kind of look at what happened there and try and sort of work out how on earth that's even possible that you go from naught to 60 in such an extraordinary way where mm-hmm. just by being in a room with someone who can write songs, you suddenly learn to, to, to really write, write yeah, songs. Yeah. It's a fabulous piece of osmosis and it's really for me it's just really heartening to know that that kind of basic skill is transferable because it seems not to be in so many different other forms i mean uh, transferable to someone who's capable of picking up that particular ball and running with it that's exactly right i mean you find that whenever anyone's teaching writing Mm -hmm. you know to a class of 800 people who've paid to come and see it there's a good chance there's half a person there that that, that, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> can actually understand what what's going on, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it just yeah. happens that Robbie was that that person. It was just like a, a a a bat waiting for a ball. It's interesting. We were talking earlier. Well, Jasper asked, you know, what was it about the band that sort of connects with us? And I'm not a big lyric person. I mean, I'm one of these people, you know, the world sort of does divide some extent. People hear the teas and people hear the words. And there are some people who hear both at the same time. I'm very much a music first person. But I was grabbed by the narratives on that second album instantly. I mean, songs like King Harvest, which is mm. possibly my favourite band song of all time. Mm. It's just an extraordinary set of stories. The the night they drove old Dixie down, which is an evocation of the last year of the Civil War. But, I mean, the storytelling, it's fantastic. Would we? Is it fair to say that the night they drove old Dixie down has become a problematic song now, do you think? <laughs> you know, it's, it's, well, I mean, it's a question it. that's being asked, you yeah. know, after Black Lives Matter and yeah. uh, the, the resurgence of racism in America. I think it's a really interesting question. There's kind of there's kind of two questions that around that song. One is, should anyone be allowed to write, to, you know, to, to, as it were, to sort of put on anyone else's voice mm-hmm. and sing their story? You know, as it, should you be allowed to do that? If he if he were singing about, you know, if were he singing about a black experience, would it be seen as some form of blackface? You know, so there's so much. There's so much. I mean, I've got really strong feelings about about that. I mean, I, you know, Shakespeare's not from Denmark. You know, the one thing I'd say is, which m- makes it legitimate, so doubly legitimate, is that Robertson as a writer is inhabiting the body of a young man in the deep south at the very end of the Civil War. And then he's getting Lee Van Helm to sing it. Yeah. The only American, the only Southerner in the group. A, a deep yeah. Southerner, you know, so, which, which... And, you know, when they, they, they talk about Robert E. Lee, they don't talk about putting a statue in a town. They're saying, there goes Robert E. Lee. It's about yeah. the movement of armies around mm. places which sure. have been peaceful. I don't have a problem with it at all, I must say. Okay. I just thought I'd throw it in there. Mm-hmm. I, just to briefly talk about 
Alaronovitz because he's so important. Yeah, I mean, yeah. He first went up to Bearsville when Albert Grossman, Dylan's manager, bought a house there. There are pictures of, of Al in Albert's kitchen and pictures of Al with Dylan there. So he was a really, really important kind of chronicler of that moment of in Dylan's career. And I thought we might just listen to the first of a couple of very short clips of Al talking. And this is this is about Albert, in fact. But Albert uh, was pretty kind to me anyway when I was really broke and crazy and on welfare in Washington, D.C., he brought me up to Woodstock and gave me a free house to live in. Really? Yeah. What year would that have been? When did you go When did you first go up to Woodstock? About 1980. 1980? Yeah. No, but in the 60s, when did you when did you first go up to Woodstock? Well, I guess it was uh, 63. About 63, yeah. And Dylan was already living there, hanging out. Yeah, he first had a place on 4th Street, and then he moved up and lived in Albert's house. Right. Get your mind off winter time. You ain't going nowhere. Yes, so that is my voice, as some might detect. I interviewed (laughs) Al for my biography of the band, and it was a slightly disillusioning experience. This was a guy, really, who, you know, who who was not in good shape. He was living in New Jersey. And in a way, his story sort of dovetails with, if we talk about, you know, John Niven, the story of the Woodstock Bearsville dream starts with, like, Big Pink and the basement tapes, but it kind of ends in terrible drug abuse. And... John really captures this. You know, anyone who thinks Woodstock was some sort of like, I don't know, Haight-Ashbury in village form, you know, certainly by the 80s, it was a, a rather broken place. Maybe if we just hear the second clip, this will give you some indication of what had become of the band by this point. I came home once when I was living in Woodstock, and uh, it was in early in the morning, about three o'clock in the morning, and I saw Rich, uh, Richard and his wife loading up their car near my house with boxes, and I didn't realize what it was until I got into my house, and they had broken into my house and had stolen a record, record collection. Right, right. But uh, Rick's wife, Elizabeth, had told me the week before that that was going to be robbed. Right. Yeah, so I'm, you know, Rick was in on it too. There comes a time when we must So, I mean, this is, this. I was really shocked when he told me this. I can still remember it. The idea that Richard Manuel and Rick Danko were so enthralled to their heroin habits that they were stealing Al Aronovitz's record collection in, in Bearsville. I mean, these were guys who had, you know, reached the kind of pinnacle of success, flown around on Learjets with Bob Dylan, and this is what it had come to. Jez, I mean, did you, when you when you got to know a little bit more about the sort of shadow history of the place, was it a surprise to you? I don't think it was a surprise. It was no less moving. There's a moment, I think, at the end of your book, Small Town Talk, where you describe, I think it's Rick Danko, going to play a show 
in Woodstock and arriving, getting on stage, opening his guitar case and finding that he's forgotten his guitar. And there's something about that moment which is just so haunting that it's almost like sort of Orpheus-like, and it's you know it's it's just just that it would get to that. It's almost too perfect and poignant and tragic an idea. I mean, I think that it's almost one of the things that I find most fascinating about the beauty of rock and roll is that it's such a tightrope walk. It's just just. I forget which early Bohemian it was who said that the land of Bohemia is bordered to the north by magic, to the east by poverty, to the south by madness, and to the west by the hospital. Wow. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah. 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 I won't be going to Bohemia for my, my holidays. <laughs> um, <laughs> in case I, I go east by mistake. Um, I think, but I think no, that's, that, very, that's very powerful. I think John Niven hit on a, a gorgeous device when he sent his protagonist to jail for seven years, thereby missing out the entire career of the, the band and coming back to see them as if in, you know, as if in, some Chris Nolan movie, you know, just just sort of burst, <laughs> burst back out in, 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 into their their final moments, and and I think that absolutely it brought into stark relief what that journey is from what from from one end of a rock and roll career to the other. You know, it's I I remember somebody saying I was reading online about Ringo Starr's 80th birthday celebrations, and someone had written in the the bit underneath it the endless trawl of trolling someone someone had written my god he looks absolutely amazing doesn't he and the person beneath it really said that's because it all cost him absolutely fuck all (laughs) 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 and and i just thought you know that's that in in a way i mean obviously ringo's had his moments and had his demons and it's unfair but the point there's something in there the idea of what it does cost the individuals involved. The other thing that's extraordinary is that what we talked about earlier is their long years on the road as the Hawks, either with or without Ronnie Hawkins. The jump from that to life with and immediately after Dylan must have been staggering. I mean, completely transforming their experience. One moment they're lugging their own amplifiers on small stages in clubs up and down through Canada and east and the seaboard. And next moment, all of this world's broken open for them. Yeah. And curiously, by, by having it happen quite late, in a sense, it actually must have made it harder for them to deal with, or certain individuals within that band to deal with. Well, Rick and Richard, certainly. Yes. And, and Levon to a yes. great degree. Well, it's great. It's been fascinating talking to you. Can, can about, I just say something about yeah, Aleronovitz yeah. very briefly? Yeah, of course, of course. It is that I love his writing. Yes. And if he had been more ambitious in terms of, let's say, being a book writer and so on and so forth, I think he would have a much higher reputation than he does today. He is of the new journalism generation very much. You know, he, he started writing in the very late 50s, I believe, early 60s. And he was a guy putting himself into his stories in that new journalistic way very, very early on and writing for a major newspaper, which makes it even more curious. And I think his writing's fabulous. I think there are times when Aleronovitz just writes like a dream. 
Yes. Unfortunately, he was his sort of his own worst enemy. Mm-hmm. Burned all his bridges and ended up, you know, very unhappy guy. I think there was a little bit of redemption towards the end. We met him in New York, didn't That's we? That's right, when yeah. We asked him if we could r- run some of his stuff on RVP. Um, I'm, I'm just going to sort of slightly change direction. Just Sorry. Yeah, no, sorry. Just one, one thing I wanted to I wanted to pick up on in, in terms of the authenticity thing. I think your answer, James, was fascinating in that what it means is that there's something about their your point about it being a sort of even Brits recognize that it means that that authenticity somehow transcends the surroundings that it was in because there's no way to have been able to judge not having ever been to the states you know at nine years old you could not have judged whether or not it was authentic based on knowing it there was something else that transcended what was going on to be authentic above and beyond the story itself which I think think is is fascinating I I think some some artists hit the drum and it sounds forever, doesn't it? It just keeps on ringing forever. It goes right down to your deepest part of your soul and just stays there, stays vibrating forever. And I think that there is something that they, they that happened to that band, the band, over a brief period of time, which was indel- completely indelible and is almost brought into, to, is almost proved by how quickly that subsided. I mean, it, as a moment, it kind of came and went for them. I recently sat down and, and, and tried to make a, you know, I, I, think, I think that the, 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 the Stage Fright is a good album. You know, I, I think that Cahoots is, is a less good album. They get, they get progressively less good. But I think that you can put together another classic album out of what they did afterwards. Yes, yes. But, you can, and I've I've tried to do it. You know, they have, not, yes, <laughs> they I'm have not, the material yeah, of it, of another another absolutely classic thing. So it's not to say that it just went cold on them. No, but, I mean it was, a, it was it was a brief. I mean, Northern Lights, Southern Cross, I think, is a very very decent late band album. I listen to it far more than I listen to Cahoots than I listen to Stage Fright. I mean, I think it's just yeah, it, it's the last sort of pretty brilliant bundle of songs that Robbie Robertson sort of came up with. But it's you know, I think all artists have a sort of limited shelf life. I, my, my, you know, I bored Barney and Jasper before about my four-year, four-album theory that even the greatest artists really only have that fairly small window. Something about popular music makes it so in a way that doesn't apply to other art forms, which is just one of those. Although, things. of course, you can come back with second and even third winds. Occasionally, very you know. occasionally. Um, yeah. Someone like Neil Young, I think, sort of nosedived a little bit in the eighties, and then he sort of came back in in the nineties with some pretty powerful electric music and some rather wonderful acoustic music. But we'll be here all day if we start. Going yeah, down that's that not. Road. <laughs> I mean, I, I did. I did. Look, because we are sort of we're in this kind of limbo of not knowing what the U.S. election results are going to be, whether Biden's going to win it or not. I was just fascinated just to briefly touch on Jerusalem as a sort of a premonition of kind of Brexit Britain. And I did want to ask you a really simple question. Would Rooster, the extraordinary character played most famously by, by Mark Rylance, a sort of definitive British character that you created in that extraordinary play, would he have voted leave? Uh, I don't think <laughs> I'm sure would. you've been asked that. Yeah, I've never been asked that. Oh, okay. I don't imagine that he would have, he'd have probably slept through the whole thing. <laughs> yes. I don't imagine he would have got his shit together. It's interesting, that character to me, because he doesn't ever really express much opinion about England or about politics or about what he thinks. It's just kind of like sort of projected 
odds at him. I think he gives one opinion in the in the play where he's where Lee is trying to get drugs on tick off of Rooster with some extraordinarily detailed thing of borrowing money off practically everyone there in order to get the drugs he needs right now. And and Rooster says this is exactly how it happened. This is just how this how how the you know the crash occurred. And I think it's the only kind of thing that, that he says on the on the sort of the subject of con- that, that's contemporaneous in that. Fair kind enough. Of way. I mean, it was. I was thinking just in terms. I'm so fascinated by this whole. You know, we talk about polarization, schisms, and there is such a polarization in this country and in the U.S. and other countries between the country and the city. And yeah. the band's music is is in a sense very rural, and I I find some of the stuff gets quite problematic because I love the countryside. I grew up a little bit in the countryside. I also am very urban and sort of metrosexually liberal in my viewpoint. Do you think it's sad that we've got to this sort of polarization? We're going to be talking about Dolly Parton in a moment. And this this idea that kind of country music is, is as it were, red state and, you know, well, hip hop is blue state. Yeah. How do you feel about this? I mean, you spend half your life in Somerset, half your life in London. And Jerusalem was set in Pusey in Wiltshire. Yeah. I'd be just interested in your kind of take on this. Well, when I first moved down to... I moved to the countryside twice, 10 years apart. And when I did it, the first time I didn't, I, I was as broke as it's possible to get. I had a borrowed bicycle. The second time I had a bit more, bit more money, but I kind of ended up hanging out with a group of people who sort of hang out at the local pub and would end up at, at sort of barbecues in people's gardens that would go on for three days and, and end in fights. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and sort of wondering what the hell I was doing there. You know, it was my own lifestyle and taste that brought me down that road. And I wasn't there for research reasons. I don't really know what I was doing. It's just a little lost. I, it, was, it was a big discovery to me the, 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 the second time to discover that almost everyone in the countryside would vote leave for example you know would vote tory if they were going to if they were going to vote because that wasn't how i had uh, that 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 wasn't how i had growing up in in the suburbs of of st albans that wasn't nobody told me that you know nobody told me that it wasn't going to be more of a mix than 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 i discovered it to, to yes. be i mean i do think that the countryside in this country and the countryside in America mean kind of completely different things. When we put Rooster Byron in a caravan down a lane in the middle of the wood in England, it accessed the whole set of ideas that when you do it on stage in Broadway, it says a very different thing. In Broadway, it says this man is probably armed <laughs> and might well be a Nazi, you know. Yeah. If if he's living in these kind of in these kind of conditions, and Michigan militia, it just flagged up a completely different set of mythical underpinning ideas to what it did here. Fair mm. enough. Interesting. Yeah, let's briefly talk about Dolly Parton. We're featuring her as the artist of the week because her autobiography is coming out in about ten days. Storyteller, aptly titled storyteller, because she regards herself as you know, as much a songwriter as, you know, as the singer that we know her to be. So we got three free pieces about Dolly that are great, including one by this fantastic writer Mark brought on board a few years ago, Gene Guerrero, oh, yeah, yeah. Who, who was writing about country music in 
in a kind of, you know, an alternative kind of hippie magazine in, you know, this in, this interview is from 1971. He's talking to Dolly Parton and writing about her for hippies in the South, isn't he, Mark? Yeah, no, it's really, really fascinating. It's the, the Great Speckled Bird, which was the great Atlanta underground paper. You know, the equivalent here would be like Friends or International Times and so on and so forth. Yeah. And yeah, he's writing about country music. Now, country music was kind of the music of the enemy back then. You know, if you're a long hair in the South, the people who wanted to run you off the road with their pickup trucks were people who oh, Easy rider. Music. Easy exactly. rider, exactly. So Gene's going to these shows, interviewing these artists, and, like, you know, he's a long-haired guy. He had been on a lot of civil rights marches and things a couple of, two or three years before. He was, you know, from the political left. You know, he's interviewing Dolly and Porter, Porter Wagner, Wagner. Who, who Dolly, in the process of getting out, as one might say, from under Porter Wagner, redefined herself as a great songwriter and a great, great solo singer. Gene's a fantastic writer. He talks about going to shows and being hissed at by me- fellow audience members on the way out because he's a hippie. You know, so actually going to these country shows was quite a risky thing for him to do. But he just loves it. He loves the music and writes very, very well about it. I actually met him. He came to a reading I did for Small Town Talk in Arlington, Virginia, which is essentially like Washington, D.C. And he came on. So I was really, really pleased to meet him. And in this interview, I mean, Dolly talks about growing up on gospel music. She talks about listening to soul music on. I mean, what do we all broadly think? Jess, what do you think? What do you think of Dolly, Dolly Parton? Are you a fan? I'm a huge fan. Yeah. I think that she's, it's, the, it's in the songs. I mean, her life aside and what she has by stealth delivered for feminism to the American culture, very quietly dressed as a, something that looks like just like it offers no threat whatsoever. And then the songs that she's managed to get into the bloodstream at the same time, it's, it's, it's one of the most fantastic clandestine operations in, in military history, frankly. That's brilliant, yeah. She calls herself a cartoon, doesn't she? I mean, yeah. she does this wonderful interview that Jude Rogers did. That's and she says, you know, I'm a cartoon. So, that's a great interview. Well worth reading. She takes the piss out of us. I've had so much plastic surgery, I am never going to get old. I'll just die one day. Yeah, yeah. She, yeah. <laughs> there's a fascinating bit in Under the Influence, the Keith Richards documentary on Netflix, where Tom Waits is talking about the idea of persona and the idea that if you can dream up a look, a mask, as it were, then you haven't got to go out there like Judy Garland, he says, and put your heart on the, on the line. You can sort of hide behind this yeah. thing. And I think Dolly Parton's... The guy, as it were, the sort of the the, the 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 Moloch that she's created to just put out there and have everybody look at while she does what the fuck she wants and says things and takes the audience to places that other writers are just not able to do without really setting off all the alarms has been fantastic. Yeah, I'd say I admire her probably more than like her in a sense. You know, just stylistically, it's not sort of desperately my territory. But I actually loved bits for all the reasons you've described. And she came up. As I said, you know, as part of like Porter Wagoner's show, and he was a macho old fuck, you know, who just really wasn't willing to give her any space at all. He was so angry when she went off and did got her solo to her career together because that wasn't supposed to happen. She was meant to be this little girl from Tennessee or wherever she comes from who was gonna gonna play ball, and in that process, she learned about the business, and apparently, she has more control 
both financially and in all kinds of other aspects, than virtually any other artist around. Well, she held on to, very smartly held on to the rights to yeah. I Will Always Love You. And Whitney Houston's version of that made her just, if she didn't have two pennies to rub together, she would have been a multimillionaire, I think, Absolutely. just from that, you know. interview with Jean Guerrero she talks about her her voices I have a real strange voice a lot of people it just irritates them to death I sound like a child I guess <laughs> I think one of the things that gets overlooked is just what a brilliant singer she is what a brilliant and beautiful voice that is would you agree with that I think she's I mean I really do think that she's a consummate artist and I think that, yeah. that those people who when they come on the radio you know who they are straight yeah. off. You know they're 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 the ones. You know they're the, you don't confuse Rod Stewart with anybody else. You know no. you don't confuse Dolly. You know within a bar who it is that you're dealing with. And I think that that she's got that. She's also a tremendously restrained singer. Yes, which I you know is that. And because she's a restrained singer, you listen to her much more closely. You know how often the more flamboyant a vocalist is, the less you actually are really listening yeah. to them. You're listening to the, the sound of them. With her, she pulls you into her songs just by never over-emoting or over-expressing. There's actually a fantastic version of Jolene where someone has just pitched the whole thing down. And it's, it just occurred to me, I just remembered it when you were talking about, she talked about her voice being childlike because what pitching it down does is is demonstrate without maybe some of the preconceptions one might have about that pitch of voice. It demonstrates just what a controlled, fantastic singer she is. And it's really haunting, actually. It's on YouTube somewhere. It's, it's well worth just digging oh. out just because <laughs> it gives you a different perspective on that voice. I think it's really interesting. Jolene. Jolene, 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 I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. I, I don't think it's any coincidence that she became one of the country singers in the 70s that, who were embraced by rock and roll, if you like. And the second piece by Barbara Sharon from Sounds in 76 is essentially about... I mean, it's an interview with Dolly, but she's talking about her friendships with an influence on, like Linda Ronstadt, Maria Moldauer, Emmylou Harris, particularly. And I think Maria was the first to cover a Dolly song. She she did a she did my my Kentucky Mountain Home or something mm -hmm. on one of her albums, and and of course that eventually led to sort of nine to five, and Dolly became a real kind of mainstream pop figure. But she, but she was she was really embraced by rock and roll. And this is a piece in Sounds about Dolly. One thing's very interesting reading the music press in my job as proofreader is you can see in the space of about two or three years, perceptions changing about Dolly. When she first comes over here, inevitably to play the big country festival at Wembley and so on and so forth. It's, you know, most especially male rock and roll journalists treated as something of a joke. And you can see respect for her rising and rising and rising over a space of about five years. She goes from being this sort of what she would herself describe as a, sort of, as a cartoon character to someone that actually 
everyone writing about her taking seriously. And it's 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 very because you don't often see that sort of process when reading no. those things. It's really interesting. I mean, of course, in the present moment, what we would all love is for a country music icon like Dolly to just say something critical about the incumbent president. Yeah. And of course, country musicians have, have remained as stum as most Republican politicians for four years because they don't want to alienate their audience. But, no, Dolly, Dolly's been speaking up. Has she? Been, yeah, she's been saying stuff. Oh, I take it back. Yeah, no, 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 absolutely. And, okay. and she says, you know, I'm, I'm going to lose half my audience here. But yeah. I, well, I don't what has like... she got to lose? What ultimate has she got to lose? I don't like this president. I don't right. know what he's doing. You know, she, has she, she? She, she has. I mean, you know, because she hasn't got records that has had much product out in the last four years, she hasn't had a platform from which to speak. Okay. Insofar as people have been talking to her, that's the message she's been giving. Which is, you know, well, she is. I, I love her even more. Yeah, she 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 is pretty right on as old Dolly. Okay, well, I think she probably is. You know, anyway, Dolly Parton, storyteller, yeah. is out the week after next. Also out this month is this enormous box set of Perry Farrell stuff. And <laughs> um, Mark. Which is, this is really a real deviation from the band of Dolly Parton. Jane's Addiction, Porno for The Pirates. trademark Rock's Back Pages Smooth <laughs> Transition. <laughs> that, this is, Mark, smooth our path <laughs> yeah. into the world of Lollapalooza. Well, this is Stephen Daly interviewing Perry Farrell in April 1996. He's getting his own, he's basically been exiled from Lollapalooza, half voluntarily, half you suspect, through being pushed out by his business partners. He's fallen out of love with it. Let's listen to this straight away, this 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 clip, the Lollapalooza clip. Do you feel you've grown apart from it or it's grown apart from you or well I think I used to feel like it 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 outgrew me. In other words it got so big, I couldn't um, keep my finger on its pulse. And uh, I could keep my finger on its pulse, but I, I really couldn't get internally in there to operate on it. Pretty much all I could do is keep my finger on its pulse. And I'm going to be very honest with you. I lost my, I really lost a love for it after we did it. You know, I, I tried, but there's so much politics. And I'm talking about people in bed with each other. You know, because you're an insider, how the industry works. It's not very different than any family or, or small community. It's incestuous. You know, he's wondering why bands like Metallica are being booked on Lollapalooza and things like that. You know, he's he's struggling with all kinds of things. But but consequences, he's setting up his own festival called Enit, E-N-I-T, which is going to be a series of one-night events around the country involving dance, tents, and so on and so forth. People like Andrew Weatherall are going to play it. His then-band Porno for Pyro is going to be on it. And he talks talking about how it's got to be a place where people can be really, really beautiful with one another and it's all going to be wonderful. And he talks about the spirit and how are they going to get the spirit there. And we listen to this quote where his idea of the spirit is, shall we say, a little odd in places. The spirit. 
spirits are here, you know, they come in the grape. I think it's pretty awesome. I think we should celebrate it. And we should learn to love every spirit, including cocaine, including heroin, anything that's a spirit. If you don't love it and you, and you fear it, you'll be at odds with it and you'll be at war with it. And you've got the, the potential to be destroyed by it. I look at it like they're, they're just a very, very, very powerful, the, the spirit of cocaine is just a very, very powerful spirit. Now, you can learn to be, you can be friends with it. And what I mean by that is actually make a friend of it. Visit it occasionally. Don't visit it too much because nobody likes somebody banging on their door all the time. You'll never be their friend and you'll be hated by them and you won't be treated well by them. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Become an adult and learn to be amongst all the spirits that are on this earth. I think I'll, I think I think I'll become an, an adult, become an adult junkie. That should work well. <laughs> an occasional <laughs> visitor of heroin. Yes, I um, tried it, man. <laughs> I, I mean, he, he he does spout a fair amount of this sort of bullshit throughout the interview. I mean, yeah, you know, he's not hideous, and you know, and Dale's a good interviewer, so he gets good stuff. We, the last clip is we're going to play at the end of the podcast is, is very amusing. It's 1995 and you know, the internet's just been invented in those colors. We're all, all on the information superhighway. <laughs> it's like, Matt, that's where I met you. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I've broken down to one side of the road. You came along, gave me a hand. <laughs> He's talking about how you can record on your computer. You can upload it to the internet and it's going to change everything, and it's going to be for the better, because all the old business people will be fucked off, and there'll be new, wonderful people doing it. Well, that worked out well, didn't it? You know, I mean, so, 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 so it's, it's good. I always love reading people talking about the internet in about 1995, and they're marvellous, yeah. batty predictions. So you know, should I put mean, a book together, really. Oh, it's good. Yeah, I think it's fantastic. That it? would be great, yeah. Jess, Jess, were you ever at all interested? I mean, did you, you never went to a Lollapalooza? Did you listen to Jane's Addiction? Was that period of time of any interest to you? Perry Farrell has remained entirely peripheral to my... Um, <laughs> <laughs> to, to, to my musical knowledge. I mean, it, it just completely failed to punch through and it wasn't a difficult room to get into my musical interest I mean, it's over the years it's really been come one come all but Jane's Addiction I couldn't name you one of their songs having said that I thought what he just said made a lot of sense <laughs> <laughs> From personal, from personal experience, yes. <laughs> I ambivalent feelings towards Perry Farrell. When Simon Reynolds was writing about Jane's addiction at a time when everything seemed terribly codified and sterile and boring, and there was this, this like, anarchic, a sort of Dionysian band from Los Angeles, I went to see them with Simon at Brixton Academy. I did think they were rather extraordinary and sort of like out of time and place. And... I did went. I went to the first Lollapalooza, funny enough, in New Jersey with Simon. And there was there was something rather glorious about Perry, very shamanic and charismatic. I'm slightly saddened by this strange sort of fading out of his of his profile. I thought he's an an interesting and maverick character, mm. and some of Jane's stuff is 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 pretty great. We didn't have a Perry Farrell audio before. I think it's on RBP. It's good to have him there. 
And we'll hear more from him later. Make friends with cocaine. Make fr- I, just, I just love it. I love it. Because all, all the interview is really about like Mother Earth, isn't it? And the, yeah, and these, planting these trees. Non-corporate and planting trees. Yeah, and the, then the spirit of heroin and cocaine are going to, are going I, I to mean, come into the picture. He met these Swedish guys somewhere and their job was planting trees and he books them to go to this festival and go around planting trees wherever they put this festival. It's marvellous hope. I mean, James anyway. were a very druggy band and, I mean, the, the, the two main albums that they made are very, very kind of dark and druggy. Weird that the, the Band with the name James Addiction was a druggy band. I just, I, I know it's 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 hiding in plain sight, isn't it? Really, it's like a purloined <laughs> letter, you know. Oh, you mean they were druggies? No, no, no. Uh, <laughs> someone else. Someone called James the druggie. They James, were okay. Yeah. What well, James yeah, says it was, well it was actually an sense. abstinence campaign about <laughs> James Addiction. <laughs> right. Okay. okay. Moving on from the world, the peripheral world of Perry Farrell. Mark, talk us through some of your highlights in the week's library load. And Jez, chip in if you've got anything to say about any of this, you know, be our guest. Well, funny enough, we're talking about the band, the Hawks, Bob Dylan. The uncredited review from Disc and Music Echo, 14th of May, 1966, of the very first date of Bob Dylan and the Hawks' tour of Ireland and the UK, which is him playing the Adelphi Cinema in Dublin. This writer, and apparently the fans surrounding him, really didn't like what they were seeing. He says... But the 15-minute solo spot was quickly forgotten as, backed by two electric guitars, organ, piano, tambourine and drums, Dylan moved into Act 2, a probie-come-Chuck Berry performance which produced instant reaction. Shouts of traitor, stuffed gollywog and love and lower the mic were heard amongst slow hand-clapping and catcalls. The racism in there. I mean, I read that, yes, I was really shocked. I mean, that that is just latent racism, isn't it? Overt racism. Moving forward to 69, Melody Maker, Chris Welch talking to Steve Winwood. This is odd. Steve Winwood started Traffic in 67. That'd be Mm -hmm. right, wouldn't it? And then basically broke up the band at the beginning of 1969. In this, he's already talking about jamming with Eric Clapton, which, of course, would turn into Blind Faith. Blind Faith yeah. And he talks about playing on Electric Ladyland, Jimi Hendrix. But, but you know, he, he's in a weird sort of floating space at the moment. He says, everybody seems to think volume was the revolution of music. That's OK theatrically, but not musically. He talks about traffic. He says, sure, I feel regrets about traffic. It was such a nice band, but nice things don't usually go on forever. Well, as it happened, by the end of the year, he pretty much reformed the band, and they, they went on for another three, four years after that. Yeah. played one of the most boring shows I've ever seen in my life at the Albert Hall in, like, 1972, just crushing. Ivor Davis in the Daily Express interviewing John Lennon. John Lennon is on his lost weekend in Los Angeles. It's 1973. Yeah, this is great. It's, it's really good. And I just chuck some quotes out. He says, I'm not saying I'm not neurotic anymore, but I can handle it better, and I don't need to get ulcers and a heart attack. He says, I came through everything. Beatlemania, the Maharishi, therapy, American immigration. It's all water for ducks back, and I put it down to experience. He says, I wish Paul would send me a letter now and then, with all the legal stuff, we'll be tied together for a long time to come. He's very wistful about Paul in this interview, actually, in a curious kind of way. That's that's surprising to you. Yeah. And the last thing I got here is, when I'm sardonic, I call England to Denmark. When I'm feeling warm, I call it home. 
maybe I'll, I'll end up there when I'm old, which of course was never going to happen. Mm-hmm. So it's it's, it's 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 a really good interview. I mean, Ivor Davis is kind of a is the entertainment correspondent for Daily Express, but he's he's surprisingly you know his questions can be surprisingly acute, and it's it's it's, it's a it's a very very interesting interview. Yeah. Village Voice, nineteen seventy five. Richard Goldstein, the dark side of Bette Midler. He sort of just <laughs> investigates who Bette Midler is in relation to New York, in relation to the gay community that she, sort of, as a performer, came came out of, and also very much in relation to Barbara Streisand. You could say they're sort of they could have been two pigs in a pod, but actually they're very much they're very different personalities. But so says. One may write a typical showbiz lead to her story, her being Bette Midler, since showbiz is what it is. And yet because of what she is, Bette Midler has always belonged in an existential rag like this. Unlike Streisand, whose success seems predicated on her own forgetfulness, I cease to wonder in my art about the reasons why I am as I am. Bette's art is a culmination of her anxiety. If her current appearance on Broadway is fraught with apprehension, that is because... Tsuris, in its sincere sense, is what her work has been about. I love Richard Goldstein's stuff. Sometimes I don't understand a word he's saying. He sort of, <laughs> you know, preempted Paul Morley in, in Pemmon in that respect. But um, when we had Jude Rogers on the other day, I was I was quite surprised to hear that because she'd interviewed Adele and to hear that Bat Miller is is one of Adele's sort of secret passions. Yeah, I, 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 I don't know if that makes sense or not, but Bat Miller was a was a pretty kind of unique figure in, in what well, still is. Yes. But in the 70s when yes. she first emerged. I mean, she had already had her... This is around the time of her second album, which Goldstein doesn't like very much. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But he talks about her emergence. He doesn't talk, He doesn't mention the Continental Bars or anything like that. But, of course, Bette Midler came up as an entertainer backed by Barry Manilow on piano at the Continental Bars, which is a gay bathhouse. Well, and Richard Goldstein himself came out many, yeah. many years later. Which well, is in fact, but by he wasn't now, out then. No, I think he is by the time. Oh, he, he is wrote, out he, by then. He, he wrote okay. this because he is increasingly for Village Voice just writing about gay issues rather yes. than about music or anything else. Very good, anyway. Do you And speak of the devil, Paul Morley, New Year's Express, January 79. And it's about... That's a bit gratuitous, <laughs> speak of the devil. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just think, anyway. It's interesting, he's writing about Manchester and about the new, the emerging scene. He writes about three bands, Spherical Objects, The Passage, and Joy Division. Joy Division are about to appear with a couple of tracks on the very first Factory release, which is a compilation album. Yes. I believe that's right. Factory sample, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Yeah. And he says, their two-year development is a scruffy patchwork of naivety, mistakes, gullibility and indecision. Yet, gloriously and significantly, their actual music has developed from clumsy three-chord exuberance into an open spatial rock sound that discreetly alters rock instruments' accepted roles in a subtly different, equally appetising way to that used by the Banshees or public image. Um, yeah, trying to get his head round Joy Division, who do speak in this piece as well. Do they? It, does Ian yeah. Curtis speak in? He does. Does he? Okay. Because yeah. you know, I mean, there really aren't very many extant interviews with, with Curtis. He was a pretty taciturn young man. Yeah. No, he, said, he says, doesn't say a lot, but he says, in fact, Morley says that they aren't articulate as a group. You know, trying to trying to get converse them is pretty difficult. This is very much, I think, Barney. For certainly you and I, 
possibly Jasper, can't talk about jazz, but Luther Vandrose, Cheryl Lynn at the Greek Theatre Los Angeles, reviewed by Richard Croman for the LA Times in October 82. And the headline is Vandross, A Staggering Potential. It says, Luther Vandross may have once toured with David Bowie as a backing singer, but he obviously didn't pick up much of Rockstar's flamboyance. Vandross is one of black music's brightest arrivals in years, and his show last week at the Greek Theatre was a periodically stunning showcase for his multitude of talents, but he's not yet a great showman. Well, he was never a particularly brilliant showman. He was always a little awkward, couldn't dance. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the great singers of 70s and 80s soul music and writers and just craftsmen, actually. I think he was... He's pretty rude about... Luther's marvellous version of House is Not at Home later in this review. Shame. 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 Jez, is Vandross someone I can't see Jez as a, as a Vandross man particularly, particularly I, as he I love looks the like stuff Garth Hudson. That he does on Young Americans. I thought that, yes. thought that, that was, yeah. was fabulous. I didn't really go wildly for his solo stuff, but I thought the documentary about how they put together a track like Win was just absolutely oh. extraordinary with, with the syncopation of the voices and the different registers. Yeah. It, I found absolutely it's fascinating. As a writer, superb. as a writer, I honestly would, would try and steal that idea of how you throw an idea backwards and forwards among, a, as it were, a chorus. I watched that over and over. Listen to that song and that album over and over while I'm writing. Yeah. Jasper, don't we have, we have a piece on Yeah, Young I was Americans, about to say, I was, I, I was going to throw in there that we actually have a reappraisal of of Young Americans in for 2007 this week, which is a really interesting article, Daryl Easley in Record Collector. So as he writes about how Young Americans is, is David Bowie's most underrated album, about how he kind of had this cross-cultural concept that he was trying to, yeah. trying to make happen on that. I think it's aged very well, Young Americans, I have to say. I, I wasn't too sure about it when I was like 15 years old. Mm. I now think it's pretty damn good. I great. actually, I loved it when it came out. It was did the you? last mm. Bowie album, I think, one of the last Bowie albums. I mean, what year did Young America? 75, right? 75, so, 73 so, so or 74. Then, then he did his Berlin Five. album. 75. His, his, right, next, yeah. his, his next album's the Berlin. With Station, no, Station Station, Station. Was, was the missing right. link in a way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was, it, it was actually a br- the beginning of a fantastic period for oh. Bowie. And actually, the stuff I like of his the most. I like kind of, I like Ziggy Stardust, don't like Aladdin so much. You know, I mean, a lot of stuff left me pretty cold. So all suddenly... of those albums were in Chris Audley's record collection that arrived in my garage. <laughs> oh, I bet they were. <laughs> Excellent. Chris Audley. We're going to have to get him on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Skipping past a couple of things, because I know we're sort of fairly over time. Uh, there's a very good piece on interviews with De La Soul by David Stubbs and Melody Maker in 89. Oh, super. I have to check that Stephen out. Wells, his reassessment of the Velvet Underground from the NME, 5th of June 1992. This is really it's wonderful. Wellsian stuff. He says, true story. I'm at the Smash It's Christmas party. The disco is blamming out nonstop teeny bop fun stuff, and the joint is bopping with the fizzing, giggling energy of a hundred or so pissed female teenage sex fiends. Fun, (laughs) fun, 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 fun. Everybody's having a great time, except the serious rock hack. The serious rock hack leans across, his face a death mask of fear and loathing, and he says sagely, hang the DJ, eh? And you know what he'd rather be listening to? 
he'd rather be listening to the Velvet Underground. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so he, he, he basically says, it's not a long piece, but he just basically tears the Velvet Underground a second arsehole. Which is well, he good. plays into that great trophy that, uh, that when Velvet Underground Nico came out, everyone who bought it and listened to it became a rock Yeah, yeah, he, he, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, he, he says... But as with any groovy shindig, there are a bunch of miserable cool bites. He's talking about the 60s and hippies and all the colour and the good, wonderful drugs, as he says. He says. But as with any groovy shindig, there were a bunch of miserable cool bastards who were out to spoil everybody else's fun. The Velvets wore black, man. Yes, you can blame them for goth. They glorified tedious, crappy lifestyle of the heron junkie. Yeah, glorified, as in made cool. Show me the Velvet's lyric that mentions, even in passing, nausea, irritable bowel syndrome, spots, bad breath, your teeth falling out and pooing your trousers. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> it, it just reminds me, en passant, that in the Al Aronovitz audio interview, Al talks about taking Robbie Robertson to see the Velvet underground. Yeah, that's right. At the door. And he walks out after about and 15 he, he minutes. Just, yeah, it, it, some, somebody's told him, for some reason, somebody's told him that Lou Reed is the next Jimi Hendrix. And I can't think... I, I mean, think Lou Reed was telling people that himself. Short, short, <laughs> short, of, short of describing Nigel Farage this week that, that Trump described him as the king of Europe. You can't really think, <laughs> think of a less likely nomenclature. Oh, Lord. Brilliant. Anyway, Brilliant. It, I, I love this piece. I mean, I love, the, I love the Velvet Underground, but actually I really see what Swells is talking about. Yeah, completely. You know. Yeah. And lastly, uh, Lloyd Bradley, retrospective interview with Public Enemy from Mojo in 1999. Flavour Flavour is always good. <laughs> Whereas the main thrust of Public Enemy is to sound well thought out and considered, I'm the one that comes and brings a, that I don't give a fuck to the records. Man, you have any idea what an honour it is to be classified as the Sammy Davis Jr. of rap? That's big. I love it. It's the second Sammy Davis Jr. reference in the podcast. It's amazing. One with the it? band in the pool house. Brings <laughs> <laughs> anyway, it full true. circle. <laughs> that's my lot. That's that's my lot, chaps. Jasper, over to you. We, we, we've been having far too much fun, and we do have to wrap up pretty quickly. Yeah, I think I'll just I'll just mention one thing actually, since we do have to wrap up, and because it's our new earliest Amy Winehouse oh. article oh, and earliest Amy, Amy Winehouse Amy, Amy. interview. And it's great. It's Dave Simpson in The Guardian on the 28th of October, 2003. So this is just when Frank is coming out. And the headline is Dietrich with a nose stud, as in Marlene, which I think is a fabulous way of <laughs> conceptualizing her at that, at that moment in time. And it's a lovely interview. She's 20 and she's very kind of untouched by the industry in a, in a nice sort of way. Winehouse is in Manchester to play her first gig outside London. In the brief period before our interview starts, she charges excitedly into the wrong venue, confuses a student radio interviewer by raving about Thelonious Monk, he's uh, an old dead guy, and coaches <laughs> her road manager into giving her a piggyback across Manchester city centre. My new ballet shoes and wet pavements don't mix, she explains. <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's great, and it, it kind of, it's, it's a nice interview, and it, it sort of underpins just how sad that story ends up being, but she's at equal turns, you know, eloquent and immature, and it's it's great to read. It's really yes. great. A Winehouse fan, Jez? Huge. I live in Camden now, and so I encounter Amy Winehouse. The ghost of Amy Winehouse, wherever 30, you go. 30 times a day. I used to live two streets up from 30 Camden Square, oh, so... Right, yeah, yeah. and it's, it's kind of eerie, because when I first lived in Camden, which was 15 years ago, 
she, you know, she was actually about the place, and now it's statues of that 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 same person. It is kind of extraordinarily moving. I think I still think that that footage of her doing "Love Is a Losing Game" live with just a guitar at the Mercury Awards is probably among my top ten ever performances that I've you know film performances. It's just it's absolutely to use a word we used earlier, indelible. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we've talked about it on a podcast. I think it's safe to say that all of us love her to a greater or less extent, largely a greater extent. I think her second album was one of the best records to come out of this country in the last 30 years. You know, that good. I think she's a tremendous songwriter, which people don't really talk about enough. I think she, again, we were talking about narratives, about Robbie Robertson's ability to write a narrative. She really, really did that. You know, what kind of fuckery is this? You made me miss the Slick Rick gig. You know? Slick Rick gig, yeah. You know, I, uh, you know, I, know, I, I think she's, she's marvellous and a huge yeah. loss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She talks very nicely in this interview about picking up the guitar age thirteen and rehearsing singing by imagining Tony Bennett was in the audience, which I think <laughs> is lovely because we talked, a, yeah. I don't know, a few yeah. weeks ago about about that duet that she did with him, and yeah. and that was the last thing that she recorded. So it kind of came full circle. Was that actually that. the last thing she recorded that duet? I think it was almost. I think yeah. I mean, what kind of fuckery is this? You made me. The slick rigging. And God, I didn't love you when I did. Can't believe you played me out like that. Well, well, look, we have come to the end. I just want to mention, because I just only heard about this before we started recording, that uh, the great photographer Baron Wallman uh. died three days, three days ago. I knew I knew he was really unwell. But he was the house photographer at Rolling Stone and really defined a certain kind of very like relaxed, impromptu, non-posed style of photography for Jan Wenner. He was also one of the first guys to photographically document the Haight-Ashbury and particularly the Grateful Dead and Jefferson Airplanes houses and so yes. on and so forth. A proper old-fashioned reportage photographer, you know, wasn't interested in glitzy poses and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. It is a terrific photographer. Took some really of the great really, really, you know, yeah. images of, of, you know, the the obvious figures from the yeah. late 60s, you know, the, the Who and Hendrix and Janice. At the beginning of this decade, I bought all the Rolling Stone magazines from the 70s to 1980 and read them on the day they came out, like, concomitantly, <laughs> uh, uh, 50 years later, which means I look forward to it. <laughs> It's and it, it's pretty. it's a really good way of slowing down what it is you think about these people and and kind of getting a chance to digest it at the pace the snail's pace that it kind of that it kind of occurred and it's really fascinating it's a really fascinating way to if you think you knew about someone it's a really fascinating way to sit down and imagine it on the day fifty years later that it actually Great happened. Great idea. Well, in a sense, that's Super what, idea. That's that's what, what Mark rock... does every day. Yeah. Well, it's, 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 what, it's kind of what, what Rocks Back Pages is, is all no, about. I've got one here. <laughs> <laughs> but, it, it, you know, we're very much about actually, you know, the contemporaneous writing from the, from that time. And it yeah. is, it's very interesting. You see attitudes shift, some terrible yeah. stuff. I mean, you know, casual sexism and blah, 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 and, you know. But, it's yeah, it's it's endlessly fascinating. Jess, we will furnish you with a free pass to the, the vaults Fantastic. of Rocks Back Pages in in thanks for, for giving us your time. It's been a really, Absolutely. really wonderful episode. I've, I've yeah. really, really enjoyed talking with you and my colleagues about, about 
a lot of different things. It's been really, really interesting. Have a safe journey back up to to <laughs> London, or is that going to? That's now you're going to be in trouble with the with the COVID police. <laughs> Uh, well, well what I'm what now. I'm doing is a legit is a legitimate move. A legitimate I've, che- I've checked it. I've checked it. We have worked out that Mr. Butterworth Thanks. was in transit <laughs> illegally on Thursday, the fifth of November. Just say you were testing your eyesight. You, you ain't. Got no-, <laughs> <laughs> no, he reads Rolling Stone today. He doesn't need to go to Bond. I'm just. But perhaps if you Bond read Rolling Bond. Stone on the train to London, then it's, you know, <laughs> hide. <laughs> Jez, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank, oh, thank you, guys. Um, I've enjoyed it immensely. And Mark, will you talk yes, us out with the, the last... this is Perry Farrell's, shall we say, less than sort of perspicacious, right, <laughs> if that's the right word, it's great. Predict, for predictions for how the, the music and the internet were going to be kissing cousins. Well, that's great. We will be back in two weeks with Mark Cooper, writer and producer, erstwhile producer of Later with Jules Holland, uh, all around great guy. We're talking to him. And we'll see you then. And uh, thanks again, Jez. Bye-bye, everyone. Cheers. Take care. Bye. I can put over the web a brand new song that I came up with this morning and go and get some kind of cool images, have a friend help me if I wanted, and throw a song to you. So... Anybody can do it. Anybody can be distributed. That's just such a beautiful, beautiful theory because I think it'll keep people honest. I don't think there'll be... I think corporations will crumble, but there'll be new corporations started. And you know who will be? The guys that really get the hits. People that have honor. And don't just do it for the, for the fast fucking buck and don't care about their product. They don't know what they're putting out or what it does to people. And they put it out regardless. You should not be trusted. That was Perry Farrell in conversation with Stephen Daly in 1996, concluding this week's Rocks Back Pages podcast. Many thanks to special guest Jez Butterworth. The hosts were Barney Hoskins and Mark Pringle, and it was co-hosted and produced by Jasper Murison Bowie. The Rocks Back Pages podcast is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. You can find thousands of articles, as well as hundreds of full-length audio interviews at rocksbackpages.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.